I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You gave me some time to read uh, Chicago Twitter. A few things. We have a new mayor. Yes, I did hear that. Congratulations. I just want to let you know that I didn't get shot today. I did an architecture tour. The buildings haven't disintegrated. But here's the funniest thing. Fox and Friends in the Morning did a segment just outside of Chicago asking people what they thought about the new mayor in Naperville. Come on, away, have their own mayor. Brandon Johnson isn't the mayor. This guy is. This was his name. I don't care how he's doing because he's not my mayor. In fact, literally, Naperville was trending because nothing unites Chicagoans. A, people bad-mouthing their city. B, suburbanites pretending to be Chicagoans. Exactly. You don't live in Chicago. You're in Rolling Meadows. I found two t-shirts from a place that's called Revolver. It's up on Clark Street. Yeah, I know that place. They have one that's the map of Illinois. And then Chicago's outlined and there's an arrow that says people who are from Chicago. And then the rest of the state, people who are not from Chicago. And then they just made one up that said, I'm from Chicago. Oh, really? What part? Naperville. It's like that old timey. Remember that poster everybody had of from the New Yorker of the map of New or it was like map of the United States. Uh-huh. And New York was totally artic- articulated, and then it was like rest. <laughs> also on Twitter yesterday, I got called a yuppie broad by a retired Chicago cop. Mm-hmm. He was you trying. Talking, you're talking what? about the year or something else. He was trying to tell me. That the loop prior to the existence of the theater district was always safe, which is not 
the case, and I'm the one that remembers walking through downtown Chicago at about seven o'clock on a Saturday night with every ticket for the opening night of the producers. Mm-hmm. Legitimately concerned I was going to get mugged because I was the only person on the street. That is not how I feel in the loop anymore. Now I wish I, there were less people and I could get across the street quicker. But yeah, I thought you'd appreciate Yuppie Broad. Oh, oh right. Yuppie Broad. I'm like the 80s called. They want their lingo back. <laughs> Welcome to Oh Malort, Chicago history you never learned in school. I am joined by John Zinn for a helping of Tylenol 3. Hello, Chicago. Hello. This episode will be coming out in about three weeks, and hopefully the city hasn't gone into hell's mouth. This has been a crazy ride, John, and it gets crazier. (laughs) Can't even wait. (laughs) It gets crazier to the point where I almost texted you with the things I found, but I need to leave them as a surprise. I know. I, I, this is one where I totally resisted looking it up because I'm like, I need to look it up, but I did not. I made myself not look it up. Okay, good. We're going to have one more episode after this, and I am going to wrap it up with perhaps the most batshit crazy part of the entire thing. Okay. I found some things I did not plan on finding. Just as a recap, seven people were killed by tainted Tylenol. They had a huge task force, but the CPD did not want to play with the FBI. So they had two investigations with two suspects. The Chicago guys liked this guy named Arnold, but all the evidence was circumstantial. After being vilified in the press, the suspect lost his shit and murdered a guy who he thought was the guy that dropped a dime on him, but it was another 350-pound man with facial hair who drank in the neighborhood. I just learned that they were both 350 pounds. The FBI is focused on a guy named Jim Lewis. He wrote the extortion letter to Tylenol because of a business transaction gone wrong. At the end of last episode, both guys were in jail. I texted you this, but I just want everyone to know, I did a spit take while I was researching this particular episode. Continue, please. All right. We are fast forwarding to 2006. This was the year that anyone over the age of 13 could join Facebook. Twitter was launched. The top song on the radio was Irreplaceable by Beyonce. Blu-ray discs were made available to the public. We had the Duke lacrosse scandal. William Shatner auctioned a kidney stone. And Time Magazine's Man of the Year was you. All worldwide web users. I think in the ultimate in the, and worldwide web users really aren't winning. <laughs> yes. Said worldwide web losers. Yeah. Yes. And this also was the year that Bob Araya or A-R-Y-A. How do you think that's pronounced? A-R-Y-A. I'll go with it. Yeah. He was an investigative reporter for CLTV, a local news station owned by the Chicago Tribune. And he contacts FBI Chicago field agent Robert Grant, saying that he 
had solved the Tylenol murders. Oh. Yes. So Grant loops in retired agent power suit wearing Roy Lane Jr. Come through, Roy. The Tribune states, Lane agreed immediately. His desire to close the case still burning strong. He had helped put away judges, mobsters, aldermen, and even a former Illinois governor during his legendary 26-year career. But the Tylenol killer had always been beyond his reach. While I was writing this, I'm like, imagine being a Fed, an FBI agent in Chicago. Well, I love that he came back for this one because putting away all of the corruption and the governor and bitter meter maids or whatever he, whatever he put away. Yeah, this is the one that you would come back for. I, it Once again, it's the perfect Law & Order episode. I love it. Bring it back, is a, Yeah, bring back a great guest star for this one. Bring back a great guest star. And I just want to also just because it's here for me, it's a digression. It was newsworthy yesterday that we're starting a city council with no aldermen who are currently under federal indictment. <laughs> this was so newsworthy that I had to call my dad and point it out. And he's like, give it time. And there is one who's under investigation for taking a bribe at the Six Corners for $5,000. I love the specific locale of it, too. <laughs> it was supposed to be a senior center. Or a senior living facility. But my dad's $5,000. My dad, the alderman who wore a wire against Ed Burke, was bribing people for Viagra. I'm sure people have been bribed for dibs, right? I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. But it's Viagra. I feel like your insurance covers it. <laughs> I haven't looked into that because I, I don't need it. I'll never need it. We're going to get a research team on this, folks, and we'll tell you next episode. Does city council insurance <laughs> All right, back to our story. Araya, the reporter, we'll just call him the reporter from CLTV, didn't think it was Jim Lewis or Roger Arnold. So he's coming in with a third suspect. On a side note, Later that year, the CLTV journalist joined the Blago administration as senior advisor. Of course. But of course. I was ready to discredit him on that because it's a little bit like being a guest on the Alex Jones show after the lawsuits, but he actually resigned in 2008. And by 2009, he writes a nine-page memo outlining why Blago should be removed from office. It's quite a read, and I'm including it in the show notes. The FBI agents, they decided Grant is interested in reopening the case. I could not find out who the CLTV journalist thought it was, and honestly, it would probably be a distraction to the story because we still have to get to the Unabomber part. What now in the lunch? I told you in episode one, the Unabomber will make an appearance in the story. All Again, right. not the weirdest part of the story. So he had the CLTV dude, Bob, 
our friend Bob, he had another suspect in mind. We don't know who it is, but didn't really matter because someone else is showing up now. We have FBI agent Grant, who's a current FBI agent. Lane is also involved. He's looped in and he has been keeping tabs on his Moby Dick on Lewis. Okay. This is our retired friend, Roy Lane. Okay. Yeah. The power suit guy. In 1985, he and a federal prosecutor flew to Boston to talk to Lewis's wife, who was willing to meet with them, but she wanted to get permission from her still incarcerated husband, who did not authorize the conversation. So that is where things ended. Shock. Shocked. Wow. I just I also want to point out, like, what kind of control does he have over her that she needs to get permission? From the in, man who's in jail. In prison and who has wrecked her life. But anyway, yes. Yes. So six months after the CLTV journalist contacts the feds, a woman approaches the Arlington Heights police because she believes her ex-husband was responsible for at least the Janus murders. That's the murder of the two brothers and one of the brother's wives. Detective Scott Winkleman rules him out as a suspect because she was a disgruntled ex-wife and her only evidence was that her ex-husband knew the address of the first victim, Mary Kellerman, the one in Elk Grove. It's worth noting that the Chicago Tribune, at the prompting of the FBI, printed her address in full. Okay. okay. So the whole Chicagoland area has access to her address. Okay. Yes. All right. I was going to ask how in the hell did he get it? Yeah. Okay. And also, I don't know how I've never been to Elk Grove. Also not in Chicago. <laughs> Thank you, Fox News. You're just giving me comedy. I will forever now look at 1540 North LaSalle as where the lady who died from Tylenol lived as opposed to the fact that I had a friend who lived in the penthouse in that building. Yeah. yeah. And the same with the, around the corner for me in Andersonville, when the judge, that disgruntled guy who got, you know, a judgment against him and he went and shot, instead of shooting the judge, he shot her husband and her mother. And that was like three blocks from me. So you just, you do just identify Unfortunately, yeah, kind of events, yeah, and especially if it's a such a weird event. Yes, exactly. He gets eliminated, but Winkleman also wants to reopen the case, and unfortunately, the evidence was spread out between all the different agencies from the original task force. He reaches out to the FBI, and. He and Grant start a second task force. Okay. It's Menudo. You know how when members of Menudo get too old, they just replace them with new members? I don't know why that came to me when I was writing this. They have a fairly lengthy explanation from the Tribune. The new law enforcement team 
which would informally call itself Task Force 2, had assembled by the early weeks of 2007 with detectives from several local municipalities joining FBI agents and an Illinois State Police investigator. The Chicago Police Department, which had clashed with the Bureau during the original investigation, agreed to cooperate with the reboot. Records show the department assigned two detectives from its cold case unit to take another look at the death of Paula Prince, the only Chicago resident to die from tainted Tylenol. Oh, good. I was hoping we would get to this, to her case. I will say good for them on collaborating. That seems promising. Bad for them on Task Force 2, Brandon. <laughs> and circuit 2, Electric 2, uh, Break into Electric Boogaloo. It's all been done. But anyway, we're working. Yeah. So the Tribune goes on to state, and this is going to come back in later conversations, probably in the next episode. But the FBI has declined to comment on Task Force 2 and denied requests for records related to its work. Winkleman, the former Arlington Heights detective who would become the driving force behind the investigation, told the Tribune he was not authorized to speak publicly about the case. Okay. Yeah. The Tribune traced the team's efforts through sealed court documents and undercover recording available police recordings and interviews with more than a dozen people with direct knowledge of the investigation. Reporters also have reviewed a confidential presentation given to prosecutors in 2012, a slideshow that ends with the task force asking that witnesses be called before the grand jury. They did as much investigating as possible they reached a wall because it is still an open investigation. Were they mostly investigating Paula Prince situation? The, the, the Chicago cops were investigating the Paula Prince situation. Remember, though, they came almost right after it happened and were like, we're never going to find anyone. So I don't know how much effort they put in. I don't want to diminish the Chicago Police Department like a yuppie Broadwood. Exactly. So one of my coworkers is a retired police detective. And I asked him about it and he's he didn't know anything, which I don't think he's it's a big police department. Is the Paula Prince one a Walgreens on North Avenue one? Paula Prince is the Walgreens on North Avenue. Okay. Which makes an appearance later in this story. Okay. Like before, they focus on Jim Lewis, who is now out of jail and in Boston. He's not, oh, let me rephrase that. He's been out of jail. He is currently in jail again, awaiting trial for kidnapping and raping a neighbor during a 2004 business dispute. Oh, shitballs. <laughs> Just to put it all... He got himself in this kind of trouble because of a business dispute with his wife's boss oh or his God. wife's former boss. His business disputes take weirder turns than the many speculations of why Tucker Carlson 
was fired from Fox News. Mm-hmm. Jimbo got probs. So does Tucky, but yeah. They're different problems, but. <laughs> different problems. One could say that they are both lifelong con men. Narcissism? Yeah. We're not going to diagnose them because we're not experts. Here. So Jimbo's, the charges against him are ultimately dismissed when the complaining witness declines to testify. Oh, okay. Which, as we know from watching Law and Order, does happen and the case falls apart. And the case goes south. Yep. Okay. He is released after three years in jail. The task force immediately starts a sting operation. Against him. Against him. Lane, who has a relationship with Jim and Leanne, he's had that relationship, remember, he released to quote the Chicago PD, they really did wine and dine, Jim. (laughs) Introduces them to an undercover agent who is going by the name or the alias of Sherry Nichols. And they set it up that Sherry is an investigative journalist claiming to have done extensive research and with his help, they can clear his name. Okay. I like the plan. From the Tribune. Sounded like a great idea. Lewis later wrote on his website. I had endured nearly 30 years of being publicly vilified in the press worldwide as the prime Tylenol mass murder suspect. I don't feel like he was vilified. I feel like he's a lesser known villain. Yeah, it seemed the press seemed very inconclusive about everybody and not pinpointing anybody. So that's why his, like his little puff ups seem suspect and i think it's one of those things now it's a weird crime in not a lot of people who weren't alive for it know about it yeah and it's not one that internet sleuths are taking up so it's it's not it's so interesting too Alyssa, that i've talked to people about it in the last couple weeks so many people do not remember that it is like Chicago area. That's interesting. That is interesting. The Tribune goes on to say, Lewis, who declined to be interviewed for this series, wrote extensively about the sting on his website. Lane would not discuss details of the undercover operation, but he told the Tribune Lewis's account was about 50% accurate. I want to underscore something here. Jim Lewis has a website. Yes, exactly. And in my commitment to thorough research, I investigated. Oh my God, what is the content? John, the dramaturg in me honors the actor in you. So I'm going to show and not tell you about this website. I'm going to send it over in the chat. 
and then don't read too much of it. There will be a time in a little bit where I have you scan it, but I really want your honest reaction. All right. Uh, and you can just describe what you see here. Oh, we've got a content problem and a font problem. Wow. Yeah. This shit is alarmist. Yeah. I saw this and my first thought was, how has this guy never been a guest on Alex Jones's InfoWars? Oh my God. All this stuff about fentanyl and it's pretty, yeah. It's like just. Oh, we'll get there in a minute. All right. Just conspiracy theories. Oh, and I'm seeing the Tylenol stuff. Yep. Wow. Down here. I'm thinking dollars to donuts. He is full on QAnon now. Oh, yes, girl. Of course he is. Oh, my gosh. And we're going to. He's throwing J&J under the bus a whole lot. I'm sure you'll bring that up. Yes. But I don't want you to spend too much time on the website because there's some other fun things that the website piqued my interest on. And I went down some rabbit holes that we'll get into in the next episode. From April 2007 to November 2008, Lane and the undercover lady FBI agent met with the Lewises at least five times. During which time, Lane helps him with a novel he started in jail which is entitled Poison, The Doctor's Dilemma. There's, okay. there's an exclamation point after Poison. Call Michael Shannon and Tracy Lentz. We have the musical. Oh, my God. I think I can sell this show. <laughs> oh, really weird digression, which will actually, will circle back to the story. But were you? Did, were you the one that got me the Pillow Man tickets for Steppenwolf? It's certainly possible. Two things. When I tell people that I saw that production, they're like, oh, I read about that. So good on you for, if you got me those tickets. And uh, I took Anne Marie to see it. And a few days later, she was at the Walgreens. And Michael Shannon was behind her in line. Mm. And she jumped. He took it as a compliment that he did a good job, but it was just funny. Yeah. In corner, right? Because he's using uh, that old it's town. The old yeah. town alehouse. And he had that Red Orchid Theater Company. Yeah, he's doing a show there next season. Yeah, he's, I saw that. Yeah, he's a good dude. He's, yeah, he's a very good actor playing really weird people. Like, and Lewis. Back to Lewis. In 2010, he self-publishes. I went to Amazon and printed out the synopsis. Novel? It's a novel. Fiction, okay. Yes. When Lane was trying to get him to write more about the Tylenol murders and try to get some sort of weird confession out of him, but it didn't work. A rogue government employee, Agua Narnanja, triggers earthquakes, threatening to level a Midwestern city. Meanwhile, underground water supplies have been poisoned and people are dying. Terror, hysteria, and eternal vigilance breed mistrust of public authority. The world-famous Dr. Charles Chuck Rivers heads up the task force 
investigating these crimes, confronts the death of his friends and family members, and the continuing and bizarre antics of his archenemy, Aqua. These are the agents of the Special Victims Unit. (laughs) (laughs) The book has six reviews and a total of 3.2 stars. Probably generous. Yeah. They either go one or five. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, there are some people of the Lewis camp who might just be writing good reviews for him. The rest are like, this is written by the main suspect of the title murders. I will not be buying this book. Yeah. Cannot. I want to let you know, we are still not to my spit take moment. <laughs> I was just going to ask you that. Oh, my oh. God. <laughs> my spit take going in. Oh, we'll get there. But back to the sting. According to Lewis, the feds bought him a laptop so he could work on his book. Okay. See if they could get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout this honeypot, because let's call it what it is. It's a 19-month honeypot. They fly to Lewis's to New York City, to Joplin, Missouri, and in 2007, back to Chicago. They're taking the Lewis's out for nice meals and putting them up in nice hotels. So in the 2007 trip, they visit the apartment of Paula Prince. And the North and Wells Walgreen, where Anne Marie was in line with Michael Shannon. Can't wait. Go and on. Evidently, Lewis said, This feels like deja vu. And then he went to the spot in the store where the Tylenol used to be located. Come on, bro. Yeah. The deja vu thing, I've had a lot of time to think about this. I could go into the stupid Walgreens there and be like, this feels like deja vu. It's also interesting because I think he lived more Lincoln Parky than Old Town. But I also don't know what the drugstore situation was back then. So He's not the dude that worked at Jewel. That was the other guy, right? That was the other guy. Okay. He was the guy who wrote the letter to the editor. Extortion. And also the extortion. Also the extortion letter. So during that trip, in a room at the Sheridan Grand Chicago, complete with a hidden camera and eavesdropping equipment and behavioral people, they put a lot of energy into this. I'm just going to say that. Lane confronts Lewis with an inconsistency about his extortion letter. So Jim claimed that it took him three days to write the letter. And the letter was mailed on October 1st. But the murders were not made public until September 30th. Now, the math here is all off because I think everyone who was having this discussion forgot that there are only 30 days in September. (laughs) Okay. Yes. I'm like, wait, there, th- that's not three days. It's only 30 days. Has September, April, June, and November. Evidently, due to technical advances since 1982, it allowed the feds to know when the envelope was postmarked. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like this is a bullshit technique. <laughs> I feel like postmarks existed in 1982. 
how did this just come about? But how, what was the technology just that they saw that the postmark was they didn't talk i literally think this is one of those yeah they can say something like since then we've learned blah 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 and he'll be like yeah i did it (laughs) also back in 1983 lewis told officials he first read about it in the new york times but they didn't publish an article until october 1st now this all seems really quaint in the world of the internet and 24-hour news cycles But this was a nationwide story as soon as it happened. He blames the discrepancy on faulty memory. And that was used so they could get a search warrant, which they executed in February 2009. According to the Tribune, the FBI wrapped up its search around 7.30 p.m., leaving through a side door with several boxes and a large Apple computer. Records show. They also took several items from storage units in the building and elsewhere. The items seized during the raid remain under seal, despite the amount of time passed and lack of arrest. There's... Huh? Tell me why. It's just because it's still an open case. Oh, okay. They do find apparently a log chronicling Lucas's activity the days leading up to the murders for both Jim and Leanne. There's no entry for Jim on September 29th until he arrived at his job at midnight. They don't know who made the who logged the activity. It could have been Jim. It could have been Leanne. It could have been the investigative journalist helping him clear his name. But he apparently made a point of waving at the security camera that night. They also find a list titled, yes, I am a killer, but I got 10 good reasons on his computer or just handwritten oh okay it includes killing people is okay if you got good reasons so here's some of the reasons listed to wipe out scum to show who is boss to, to protect my family and to teach a lesson circumstantial i guess uh-huh can't be yeah. anything we're now to the moment where I did my spit take. And I am not going to describe it to you. I am going to send it to you in the chat. Boy and Sherry were working undercover, running a sting operation against me. Reread undercover. Okay. Roy and Sherry were working undercover. Running a sting operation again. U-M-D-E. Oh, undercover. (laughs) Undercover. Running a sting (laughs) operation against me for 18 months while I was writing my novel, Poison, The Doctor's Dilemma. It it was the undercover that just, I'm reading it. I'm just like, oh my, what's happening here? 
<laughs> and just while I was writing my novel, Poison, that it, and now I'm seeing it in like print, Poison, Exhibition. Oh my God. And here's another quote from Jim's website that has, spoiler alert, another hilarious typo. This is the longer one. All right. Should I read it? Read it. Yeah. For 18 months, Roy Lane and Sherry Nichols acting in cahoots. Love that. Love that word. Stroked my battered ego, wined and dined my wife and me at expensive restaurants and tried to get both of us tea toddlers, <laughs> which is T-E-E. They gave me money to buy a laptop computer, flew me at government expense to Chicago, New York, and Joplin, Missouri, then back to Boston, put me up in expensive hotels and paid me thousands of dollars, all while trying to manipulate me into implicating myself in mass murder in my own novel. The tea toddlers was put t-shirts on toddlers. This is the moment when I became convinced Lewis, though a lifelong con man and a violent dude, didn't do it. It is because of the typos. It has been years, ostensibly, since he wrote this. And he hasn't fixed the typos. I say this as someone who had a blog. I always wrote in Microsoft Word and used grammar and spell check. And everyone can have a typo now and then, but you go back and fix it. I don't know if he would be, I don't know if he would be that concerned about it. He is obviously stream of consciousness puking all this stuff up on his website. Which is exactly why it shows a sloppiness. No, okay, I'm with you there. I'm now understanding, yeah. And not someone who is a criminal mastermind. Mm-hmm. The attention to detail that was needed to pull this off is, it's lacking because he keeps getting caught for all of his other crimes. I know, that's the thing. Like, everything yeah. else... Even small stuff he's got caught for, but he can't get caught for this. It does maybe make, I am getting, I am coming around a little. I was in disagreement. Now I'm coming around though. I had a lot more time to think about my theories about this. Yeah. But yes, that maybe he is just going with the idea that people could think he could mastermind this great crime, but he really didn't. It's also why I'm not buying a self-published book. (laughs) but then i had a thought we could do a bonus episode where we read sections of the book (laughs) there's a podcast i listen to called behind the bastards and they do the worst people in history the worst people in history and every once in a while they have to lighten things so they just read segments from ben shapiro's sex book okay (laughs) Yeah, that would be my worry that it would be just so GD depressing with paranoia and delusion and all that stuff. Yeah. But that one podcast that is whatever my, my father wrote a porno. 
Oh, wow. I've never heard of that one. Yeah. It's these three British people. And one of their dads wrote a very soft core, like romance porno novel. And they read it. They're all like 30 something. And they just read various chapters and laugh their asses off about it. It's pretty damn funny. I almost did a spit take there. It's ridiculous. And they're all like, they're all just, what? She came in the office. She took off a top. Why? Why would she do that? It's the office. I'll have to check that out. All right. The task force also heads to Missouri to piece together Lewis's life before the murders. Which they hadn't done before? I don't know. Apparently not a lot of people are willing to talk to them. They do, however, find the pediatric surgeon who confirms that Jim's daughter died because of her stitches. Remember, they were made by a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. Oh, right. For the task force, this is the motive. They say you don't necessarily have to have a motive, but juries like a motive. That said, no one knows if Jim and Leanne ever even read the autopsy. Interesting. And the people interviewed who were willing to talk to them said that Lewis accepted the death and didn't blame anyone. Oh, interesting. I was going to say, They were told something. They were told it could have been complications. It could have been the stitches. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a doctor and I've never had anyone tell me that someone's died by a doctor. But if I just, I don't think they'd be like, it was because of the stitches made by Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, they would not have. Yeah. Yeah. I had hernia surgery and I know that I have stitches that are just going to disintegrate. I don't know who made them. Yeah. And I don't think that Jim and Leanne are sophisticated. I don't want to diss them, but I don't think they're sophisticated enough to be like, who made the stitches? Even that little detour through this disturbing website is, it's not about that. It's about much broader conspiracy theories. Yeah. Yeah. And so you went through the website. There is just a lot of Johnson and Johnson conspiracies, like the talcum powder. There was some sort of vaginal mesh, probably the vaginal mesh that you see advertised on television all the time for class action suits. And the most recent entry was 2021 with the J&J vaccine recall. And he says, yeah, right here, if Illinois authorities and the FBI had indicted J&J for those seven Tylenol murders in 1982, they would have saved the lives of several thousand people killed by J&J's fentanyl. But it's not tracking it to his daughter. And again, I don't think he has the self-control if that was the case. To not be like, and they killed my daughter. Yep. It's a weird obsession, though, with J&J, now that I'm looking. Yeah. Anyway. Listen. I think if I was a suspect in a murder for now 40 years, 
I'd have some ill will towards the people. I think he's not a well man. I think he's a con man. I think he's a despicable piece of shit. But he really did think in that sting operation that the feds, because he didn't know one of them was a fed, that they were his friends. Yes. He definitely had his delusional on some level, paranoid, whatever, however you diagnose it. I'm not a psychological professional, but yes. Yeah. And he's tracking it way back to J&J in a general term. So yes, I come about who knows. Yeah. Okay. I'm there. In 2010, the DuPage County prosecutors file an affidavit to get Lewis's DNA. A judge grants the warrant. He tries to fight it in Boston. He loses and is immediately swabbed and fingerprinted. It is not a match. For what was on the, what were they matching it to? What was on one of those bottles? Yeah, what was on the bottles. Yeah, okay. In a cop drama, this would eliminate him as a suspect from the Tribune. As technology improves, forensic scientists are working to identify new profiles connected to the tainted bottles so that they can be compared with the existing samples. Sources say several profiles already had been eliminated from suspicion, including one belonging to an FBI analyst who tested the evidence during the task force reboot. The second task force, however, insisted They didn't need forensic evidence to move forward. In 2012, Task Force 2 asked the prosecutors in both DuPage and Cook counties to prosecute. Now, from the good old Tribune, at the time of the 2012 meeting, Grant had already planned to retire from the Bureau after a storied 29-year career that netted convictions against former Governor Rod Blagojevich, the Chicago outfit, and two men involved in the Mumbai terrorist attacks. He held the rebooted task force's work in such high regard, he made the presentation to then-Cook County State's Attorney Anita Alvarez and DuPage County State's Attorney Robert Berlin one of his last formal meetings before leaving the job. But Task Force 2, Electric Boogaloo, had no new evidence. They had no new evidence. They had, if I killed someone or I killed someone, I have good, whatever the list was. Yeah. It's just more circumstantial evidence. Yeah, but no whatever you call hard evidence or fingerprints. So... Again, from the Tribune, multiple sources told the Tribune one critical witness did appear before a DuPage County grand jury after the 2012 presentation. That witness invoked her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, the sources said. Yeah. And the feds had brought in either, I think, a prosecutor was like, what are you waiting for? And we'll get to that part. No charges were ever approved. Later, they go back to Kim Fox. They try to get Kim Fox to prosecute, but that girl wouldn't even prosecute Jesse Smollett. She sure ain't going to prosecute somebody on circumstantial evidence. So this is to quote Grant. 
our position was this may be the last best chance to bring this to public light. But it's a prosecutor's decision, not an investigator's decision. I felt very bad for the families. I felt very bad for the people who might be at risk. There's public interest to, parentheses, put all the evidence out there. But that's a prosecutor's decision. First of all, ain't nobody at risk of getting Tylenol poisoned in 2012. Maybe the way to do it is have a Red Orchid commission poison the doctor's dilemma as a stage play with Shannon and see if they're all green site specific and see if Lewis shows up. Here's my thought. The DOJ just doesn't think the case is winnable. They know it's not, which is why they're not prosecuting it themselves. They don't, have they don't advance cases without a high likelihood of winning. They don't have a case, yeah. There's a reason why there's a cliche called making a federal case of it. And it's worth noting, these feds aren't keystone cops. They put away governors, terrorists, cops, judges, aldermen. A year after the meeting... The feds withdraw from task force to electric boogaloo, leaving the investigation in the hands of the Arlington Heights police force, where it remains an active and ongoing case. But wait, there's more. I just told you what the task force two was doing with Jim Lewis. But remember Roger Arnold? Yes. He gets out of mm-hmm. yes. He gets out of jail, and he lives just a really quiet life. He got a job at an auto parts store. He made a lot of really good friends. Um, one woman went on to be a doctor. She thinks he was a surrogate uncle. I learned he was a veteran too. I don't want to go too soft on the guy, but he because he did kill someone. I'm just kind of letting you know what I learned. He was a veteran, which might explain some things. And the veteran services cut off his access to his depression medication. Okay. That he probably got through the VA. So no. Okay. Yes. And he got really too depressed to go to work anymore. And he had to quit his job. And people would go check on him. They say that he was absolutely haunted by what he had done for the rest of his life. And he dies in 2008. Mm. Of heart issues, not anything okay yeah in 2010 a judge orders them to exhume his body to test his dna it is not a match what he's not a match either so they interviewed people who knew him and the woman who grew up to became a doctor who's considered to be like an honorary uncle just said, and it goes back to this patience thing and being methodical. She just said that the Roger Arnold she knew didn't have the patience to pull it off. And if you look at the murder that he did, he shot the wrong guy because he was in the heat of the moment right. thing. So we now have Arnold and Lewis as... Really, probably not at all. But they said something like, you still, and this, I didn't research this because it came to me yesterday, but it does say that even though you're not a match, 
it doesn't disqualify or eliminate you as a suspect. I think there could be, right, yes, a little sliver of... Yes. But... All right. So, a year after the Lewis DNA, they test the Unabomber. Yes. I can't wait to hear what comes next. I'm like... They test the Unabomber. And, okay, he wasn't a suspect. But in some legal maneuvering for him not to have his property auctioned off, they could be getting rid of material that would solve the Tylenol murders. Wasn't he in Montana or something? He was originally in Chicago. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was in the University of Chicago. Okay. So put the link for the article in the show notes, because that's a whole other thing I just didn't want to get too complicated on. But mostly, they run his DNA because they want to avoid the accusation that they overlooked a domestic terrorist as a suspect. You can't blame them. Next up, they're going to take the DNA of Bozo the Clown or maybe Cookie. <laughs> My money's on Sven Gulli. Well, here Celine Dion is kind of mean, so we better get her in there, too. So, like, earlier this year, in the year of 2023, I read an article on CBS2 Chicago, and they are still running DNA tests. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to include it in the show notes because it's really technical DNA. They're an outside company. It just gets more and more precise. And they are solving cold cases. They are solving now cold cases from ago. New DNA testing. Yeah. Yeah. We do also have the whole, they didn't really handle the crime scene part, but I'm not going to, a couple things. My, my other thought was like reading this and reading about the feds executing a search warrant I don't when they did the search warrant on Roger Stone the notified the news and there were press helicopters they also notified the news when they executed the warrant on Jim Lewis so there were also helicopters and it made me realize that and I'm not being sarcastic I'm not being snarky feds executing search warrants is just such a part of our local news which might be why when say the feds searched mar-a-lago it wasn't a big deal to me that's just tuesday in chicago that's true i crack up when you're there was a period of time in 20 20 2021 when you were having conversations with people about aldermans who had their office raided you had to specify which one you were talking about. And seeing boxes like carted away. Yeah. It, it's like, where do those go? It's like the in the X-Files, a big warehouse out in the middle of somewhere. They just, they're still there. No one like, well, I went back to the Chicago Magazine because I used some really good quotes from the earlier episodes. I just wanted to see if they said anything about, it wasn't written last year. The Tribune was a multi-part, really long on the anniversary. The Chicago Mag just looked back at it, but that was the good where we got the good quote of, I don't think I've ever quite done anything like that or whatever Jane Byrne said. 
So we have the Polish police superintendent. He's got to take. My opinion is that this was an initial homicide where the bad guy knew the, the victim and that was it. And then to cover it up, the bad guy went and contaminated the other ones. That motive makes the most sense to me. I, and just to remember, was Paula Poundstone, or not Paula Poundstone, <laughs> Paula Prince, she was the first one, right? No, she was the last one. Oh, she was the last one. Where was the first one again? Was it the Highland Park one? No, it wasn't Highland Park, Arlington Heights, and then, oh, I'm going to have to go up to the top, because I can't remember. It was a su suburb we were talking about earlier. Okay. I didn't want to insult people from the suburbs, even though I said it wasn't Chicago. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You'll put that in what suburb it was in Elk Grove Village or Elk Grove. Elk Grove. Okay. And she was 12. She was a little kid. That was the kid. Oh, I was telling somebody I work with, they were really good friends with that family. Yeah, it was a little kid. The timeline, unless he was planning, let's dissect. Yeah. I don't think that a parent is going to kill their child with cyanide. I find it hard to believe that there was somebody who had a big vendetta, a 12-year-old girl in Elk Grove. Of course it could happen, but that just doesn't seem... No. And this is the CPD who was saying this, right? Yeah. And a firefighter, Keyworth, he said, I personally think that the person or persons involved in this, my gut feeling was that their purpose was to bring the United States to its knees. Look at all the power we have. We can shut down the entire economy. We can control the world. And for a short period of time, they did. In today's world, it would be domestic terrorism. We didn't have that terminology back then, but it was actually the first case of domestic terrorism in the country. Yes, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Next week, we are finally going to get to the part that you were interested in initially, Johnson and Johnson's response. And then... I'm going to close it out with one final kooky gift in this tale. All oh, right. Do you have any uh, thoughts? What a roller coaster. We'll bring <laughs> it home. We'll bring this plane in for landing next time. Oh, my God. I really thought we would be done. But Jim Lewis has a website. What else am I supposed to say? Oh, my God. And it really is, it's, it's a little picture of Chicago, but it's also a little picture of that time in America, right? And what it begat. It's really fascinating. It's fascinating because there are people who, when you just think about everything that didn't have safety seals. Oh, yeah. Your milk didn't have a safety seal. Like, they didn't have tamper-resistant stuff, which, A, goes to how trusting people were prior to 1982. Absolutely. And the thought of the domestic terrorism, like nobody would try to hurt somebody wide scale. Oh, yeah, they, they would. Yeah. Yeah. Although, again, when was the Rajanishis? 
Oh, yeah. So that was 80s, but I feel like it was after that. It might have been after that. And I don't know that they called it bioterrorism then. And I would actually say that was more, Rajneeshi was more bioterrorism definitively because it did have a political motive. Yeah. Of getting people to not vote. Yeah. Maybe we'll do a, it's not Chicago, we'll do a subgenre on that all host since I was there during that time. (laughs) Can I have you take the wheel? Yeah. It cracks me up that you were there. I, as a side note, I'm just going to leave this in here because I sometimes just sit and laugh at peripherally how many people I know who are attached to cults. Really? Yeah. Yeah. As in people like, who just had family members or friends in them or have dabbled in them or something like that? I had one girl that I worked with. She grew up in one. I, and then I had, I might get the story wrong, but I had a friend whose parents were musicians or her dad was a musician and they answered a call for a guitarist or a musician on a boat. Do you know what famous cult has boats? No, what? Scientology. Yeah. It's just, oh. Yeah. It cracks me up. But all right. So here's the thing. You can't dig too much into Jim Lewis's website because I need you to come in blind for our final episode. All right. All right. I'll stay out. I'm so excited, though. Yes. (laughs) Let's put it this way. I'm telling people who have not been on this journey the things I discovered and they're cracking up. (laughs) All right. All right. All All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed today's episode, hit the subscribe button quicker than things get weird in Jim Lewis's business dealings and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.